If you take your Bible, please turn with me to the book of Matthew, chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, if you look, there's a, probably a Bible in the chairs in front of you, or you can look on the back of the outline. We'll be covering some of that text today. We'll be all over Scripture this morning. Matthew, chapter 1. You know, sometimes the presence, the presence of an important person at the wrong moment can cause great distress. Uh, when I was in uh, high school, I was taking an algebra class, or I guess I was in the eighth grade, I was taking an algebra class that was being taught by a grad student at our private school. And this grad student, um, as you can imagine, had a very hard time controlling our class. Um, and I think at one point, he struggled so much to keep us under control, he just decided he was going to give up and join in on the fun. And so we were um, laughing, and, and I think we were throwing wadded-up paper balls at each other or something that, you know, a lot of math going on um, in that class at that moment. And I, I still remember to this day, he was a very composed, all that very, very immature grad student, and that he just didn't have a lot of life experience, and so he thought, you know what, I'm, I'm just going to have fun with these kids for once, and he, he, picked, up, he picked up a ball of, 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 of um, paper, he wadded it up, and he, he threw it across the room, and as he threw it across the room, we all, I, I noticed that my friend was, had his mouth open, and at the door was the principal, just looking. We all thought we were dead. We weren't. He was. And... Uh, he kind of he dropped his head a little bit and walked to the door, and he and the principal had a conversation in the hallway that lasted a little while. You know, is the fun moment changed immediately into a sober moment by the presence of that very stern, very direct principal. It brought an immediate awareness to what we were doing. His presence there was like, oh, we probably should not be doing what we're doing. In a similar way, the presence of God can have that effect, where His presence reveals to us that we should not be doing what we're doing. In fact, the correct view of God, the, the proper view of God, will strike a kind of fear and awe into our hearts when we understand who He is and what He demands of us. This morning, let's look at God's Word and see what He has for us out of this passage in Matthew 1. Father, we thank You for Your presence today that is comforting to us. We thank you for your presence um, in the cradle there in the manger. And we thank you, Lord, that you have given us your word as your presence that is here among us now and your spirit that is here, as he is here among us as well to convict us of our sin and to show us from the word, to illuminate the word of God to our eyes and to our hearts. And Lord, today we are grateful for this Christmas season that we can focus our attention on the incarnation and the beauty of it, also the meaning of it, and how it gives us hope in a hopeless world. Father, bless uh, this time as we open your word. May you guard my mouth to speak the truth from your word, and I pray that we would absorb it, we'd learn from it, and we would change according to your truth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Um, we'll see, as uh, we see Matthew chapter 1, if you look in your Bible, you'll notice uh, there in verse 22, uh, the passage, it, it tells us that um, all this was done, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall conceive, be with child, bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. In the next two Sundays, this Sunday, next Sunday, I'm going to pick 
hear the name Emmanuel and talk about what it means, the names of Christ, the names of the Son of God, Emmanuel, God with us. And in order to understand what Jesus is, what is when they say His name is called Emmanuel, to understand the impact of that statement, which was, which was very great, uh, we need to go back and see what God tells us about this in the weight of its, of its biblical context. We need to understand before we can fully appreciate it. So I'm going to have you go all the way back to the beginning of your Bible, Genesis if you would, Genesis chapter 3. We're going to begin to see where this begins. And the first point is simply stated, God with us reveals our need. God with us reveals our need. When God is there, God's presence, I'm going to use the word God with us, this idea of God's presence is Emmanuel, God with us. How does this work? Well, the first thing we're going to see out of Genesis chapter 3 is that God his presence brings fear to the disobedient. And you see in the Garden of Eden, there is sweet fellowship. God is made man. Everything is good. He makes woman for man, and they are in great, they have great companionship with one another, great companionship with God. There is nothing separating mankind from God. It is a beautiful, wonderful relationship. In fact, if you look down at verse 8, we're going to skip ahead just a little bit here for a moment. Look, verse 8, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Now, before you keep reading, you notice this seems to be something that God did with His creation. It seems that God fellowshiped in a very close presence with mankind before sin. And this relationship was beautiful and wonderful and perfect. Everything was good. But we look at verse 6, we see disrupted fellowship in verse 6. Read with me. He says, so when the woman saw the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes, a tree desirable to make one wise, she's been lied to by the serpent. She took of the fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her and he ate. Verse 7, then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. Now verse 8, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day and instead of feeling this closeness like they would have felt, instead of saying, oh, it's the Lord, it's our friend, he is our maker, he is the one who loves us more than anything, what do they do? Look at the next verse, look at the next phrase in that verse. It says, Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Notice their response to the disobedience. What do they do? They immediately cover themselves, and that covering puts distance between them and their Creator. They experience shame immediately. That's why we wear clothes, because of the shame associated with sin. And this is Adam and Eve, as they, as they wear the clothes, they make for themselves clothes. Notice they do that themselves. They, they make their own clothes out of these, out of these leaves, and then they hear the, the sound of God moving in the garden, and what do they do by response? They hide themselves. Not only do they cover themselves, they hide themselves. They don't want anything to do with God. And if you have sinned, you know this is your feeling. Our sin... God's presence brings fear to those of us who are disobedient. You see this even among children, my children, who will at times, when they disobey me, run from me. And, and, and I will say, what did you just do? And instead of answering what I asked them, they will turn and they will run. They are hiding from me. They think they can outrun me. They haven't learned yet. <laughs> Can't outrun me. I am your dad. I will find you. 
And it is, it is here where we see our very natural inclination, our very natural desire to run from God, to hide from God, because we know God's presence means accountability. We know God's presence and His truth, and all that God is, is scary to us when we are disobedient. So, what does God do in response to this? God pursues them. Look at verse 9. The Lord God called to Adam and said to him, where are you? Do you think he asked that because he didn't know where Adam was? He's like, oh, where did Adam go? I don't know. I lost him. No, he's calling out Adam's name. Where are you? He says, where are you? He's calling to him to, to provoke Adam, which he does in verse 10. And, and he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid, fear, there it is, because I was naked and I hid myself. God wants to be with Adam when Adam doesn't want to be with God. God is pursuing the sinner. God is pursuing the disobedient. And those of you who have not yet trusted Christ as your Savior, you have felt that pursuit from the Savior, the one who is pursuing you and loves you and does not want to leave you alone, who lets you, who tells you about the truth. You know the Spirit of God is convicting you of sin. And you people who are saved, you know the pursuit of the Spirit of God in your life too. You feel that when you're running from Him? He pursues you. He does not let you go. He pursues you just like He pursued Adam here. And what happens next shows the tremendous grace and mercy and kindness of God because God promised them, and the day you eat of it, you shall surely what? Die. And He could have taken a bolt of lightning and struck them both physically dead at that moment, but He did not do that. Instead, they had died spiritually in that moment. They had been separated from God, which is death. And look at verse 11, and God said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you you should not eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. Of course, he blames shifts. And the Lord says, what have you done? And she says, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So then the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go. You shall eat dust all the days of your life. And then verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. The promise in God's curse on the serpent is that someday in the future there would come a seed of the woman. That's a very interesting description. It's very unusual. Normally it's the seed of the man, but here the seed of the woman is coming. And, the, and this seed of the woman would destroy that serpent. See, he will, he will have a blow against the seed of the woman. There will be some kind of harm. It says you will bruise his heel, but a heel is not a crushing blow. It's not a mortal blow. But the blow against the serpent and his seed will be de definite and final. It will be the crushing of his head. And so here we have the in-seed form, the gospel being told. And in verse 21, we saw that why they had clothed themselves. Now, verse 21, it says, And Adam and his wife, the Lord God, made tunics of skin, and he clothed them. Then God is the one who says, Your coverings are not good enough. Your coverings do not suffice. I will make for you coverings. And God does not make coverings of leaves like they made. God kills an animal and makes skin and covers them because blood is required for sin to be paid for. Even here in the beginning, we see that God's justice is carried out as now because of their sin. Verse 22, they can no longer be with God. God's presence brought fear. Look at verse 22, the Lord said, behold, the man has become like one of us, no good and evil. Let us 
And now lest he put out his hand and take from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man and placed cherubim in the east of the garden of Eden, a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. No part, I think the worst part of this punishment was that they could no longer see or be with the presence of God. Their fellowship with God was broken. They would no longer have the joy of the presence of God. Now there was separation. See, the presence of God brings fear to the disobedient. If you go forward with me to one book, to Exodus chapter 3, you'll find the second truth, that God's presence demands distance from the fearful. Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. If we go forward like we have now, we've seen as God threw Adam and Eve out of the garden because of their sin. Now the nation of Israel, uh, we have the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then we have them going into Egypt and coming out of Egypt uh, later in the book of Exodus. But now they are slaves in Egypt. We have Moses given to us in Genesis, uh, I mean, sorry, in in Exodus. And in Exodus 3, we have this story beginning in verse 1. We see God appearing to Moses. And Moses, it says, was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. He led the flocks to the back of the desert, came to Horeb, mountain of God. Verse 2, and the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. So he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. So Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. And when the Lord saw that he had turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Notice again, Moses was not pursuing God at this moment. Moses was just living his life. In fact, he had run away from Egypt, and now he was in the wilderness. And as he's in the wilderness tending sheep, God shows up. God the pursuer. And God calls out to Moses, calling him by his name, Moses, Moses. He repeats that. And the angel of the Lord who calls out to him, Moses does not hide from the presence of God. He responds to the call. He says, here I am. What do you want with me? But notice God's command to him in verse 5. Look at verse 5. He says, and he said, do not draw near this place. Whoa, that's unusual. God is saying, hey, 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 Moses. And Moses says, yes, I'm right. He says, whoa, stop. Don't come close. You recognize the presence of God is not something that we can just walk up to. He says, do not take off or not come near this place. Take off your sandals. Take off your shoes. For the place where you stand is holy ground. God says, your your presence, or my presence, God says, means you cannot come close. God's presence is not open. You cannot approach God uh, just how you are. You, 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 you can approach God from a distance, but as you get close, you must remove your shoes because your shoes are associated with that which is filthy, that which is dirty, that which is disgusting. And he says, uh, take off your shoes so you can unburden your filth so you can come close to me because the place you're standing on is set apart ground. We read the word holy and sometimes we think it's shining or it's glorious, but the word holy really has the idea of special or set apart. He says, no, 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 this is set apart ground. This is special ground. It's the place of God's presence. And and notice how Moses responds in verse 6. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. It's at this moment that Abraham real I mean that Moses realized, 
I'm not just seeing an hallucination. I'm not seeing something that's just kind of strange. I am speaking to the God of my fathers. And how does he respond? Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. The fearful man, the power and majesty of God, leads a sinful man to hide himself because God's presence demands distance. You cannot come to God. You are not worthy. I am not worthy. I cannot walk up to God on my own. In fact, God's revelation of himself led Moses to question his qualifications. Look at verses 9 through 11. Moses is like, who am I to do your job? Therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel, verse 9, it's come, upon, come to me. I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, therefore, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? A common response to God from someone God wants to use is, I can't do that. Who do you think I am? I can't do that. I'm underqualified, but what does God promise in Moses' fear when Moses says, I can't do this? Look at verse 12. God, he says, I will certainly be with you. And this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. With God's presence, Moses changes his tune. Moses says, okay, if you're going to come with me, and I'm going to have you on my side, I will follow you. Verse 13, indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, the God of the Father, of my fathers has sent you, they will say, what is his name? Who am I to say? God reveals himself to Moses. He says, say, I am who I am. In other words, my name is I am. I am self-existent. I need no one or nothing. Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am sent you. Verse 15, moreover, God said to Moses, thus you shall say to the children, the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is my memorial to all generations. God's presence meant that he was actively working. Look at verse 16. He says, go and gather the elders of the Israel together and say, the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob appeared to me saying, I have surely what? I have surely visited the Bible should say something like that, visited you and seen what is done to you in Egypt. God says, Moses, I want you to gather everyone and tell them that God has visited them. God's presence is here. When the Bible talks about God's visitation, the word is pakad in Hebrew, pakad, to visit, has two sides to it. When you say visitation, there are two kinds of visitation. The first kind of visitation has to do with salvation. We see this in verses like Genesis 21. The Lord visited Sarah, Pakad, as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had spoken. What did God do for Sarah? You remember? What did he give her? A child. God visited Sarah and gave her a child in her old age. In Genesis chapter 50 and verse 24, Joseph said to his brethren, I am dying, but God will surely what? visit you and bring you out of this land to the land to which he swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In Ruth chapter 1, she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had visited his people by giving them bread. God's visitation is associated with salvation, his work of saving and rescuing his people. But God's visitation is also associated with accountability and or judgment. Look at this, Exodus chapter 20 and verse 5. 
You shall not bow down to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquities of the fathers upon the children into the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. If you, if you, he said, I will judge you and I will visit you, visit their iniquities. We keep going, verses like Exodus 32. He says, now therefore go lead the people to the place to which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day which I visit for punishment, I will visit punishment upon them for their sin. God's pakad, God's visitation, involves both his salvation and his judgment. God's distance, though, was a theme carried through the Old Testament. In Numbers chapter 5, God instructs part of the law that when someone was defiled, they were had to be put outside the camp lest the camp, the place where the Lord dwelt, be impure. God's presence prohibited these people from being there. Let's keep going. We'll see this third point here that um, God's presence, oh, I, forgot, I don't have this uh, on, your, on your outline or on the screen, but if you look with me in, in verse, in Exodus 19, could you turn a few chapters over? On your outline, the answer, your blank you're looking for is God's presence demands holiness. God's presence demands holiness from his worshipers. Exodus 19, as we move forward in the story through Israel, we see God's power manifest. Here it is. God's presence demands holiness from his worshipers. Here's where God told Moses that they would worship him. Earlier in Exodus 3, he said, you'll come to this mountain. This is the place. This will be the sign that I'm using you. You'll come to this place and worship me. I want you to look at verse 10. We'll see the consecration that's required. Exodus chapter 19, in verse 10, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them. Today and tomorrow let them wash their clothes. Have them be holy. Have them be purified. God's presence demands holiness. And then look at verse 12. There are boundaries that are set. He says, You shall set bounds for the people all around saying, take heed to yourselves that you do not go up to the mountain or touch its base. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. He says, you cannot come close to me. God's presence reveals our wickedness and it reveals our need. It reveals that we are impure. He says, you can't come close to me. You can't even touch the base of the mountain where God will be giving the law. You cannot come. Only, my, only the people who I ordain will come up to the mountain. And then in verse 13 through 18, we're not going to read through this passage, but God's tremendous power is shown. God's unbelievable power is shown as he, as he, as he uh, lightnings and thunders and God's power is on display. God's presence meant you're, meant you're not welcome to come. If, in fact, if you look in chapter uh, 25, let's go forward just a couple chapters here to Exodus 25, as they build the tabernacle and they make the tabernacle there, what does God say the reason they should have this sanctuary? Exodus 25 and verse 8, he says, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. There must be a place where God is set apart from the people, where they cannot come close into that holy place or to that holy of holy place. You cannot come close to that because God is holy and we are not. In fact, if you keep going to Exodus 29 and verse 45 and verse 46, he says, I will dwell among the children of Israel and will be their God and they shall know that I am the Lord their God. I will dwell among the children of Israel. The Old Testament teaches us this powerful truth about the presence of God, that it's direct, that it's consistent. This presence of God is powerful and something to be feared. In fact, God's might might be 
overwhelming. God's holiness is untouchable. God's greatness is beyond our thinking. And because of our sin, we can't come close to that. We cannot come close to God on our own. We are sinful creatures. We would stand a better chance being thrown into the heart of the sun than facing God. We have nothing. We cannot stand up to that. And if there's any hope of us being reconciled with God, if there's any hope that we might not be just burned in hell forever for our sin, if there's any hope at all for this, it would not be something that we could do. It has to be something He does for us because we are unable. It would mean His coming to us. It would mean His work on our behalf. And the Old Testament prophets predicted that this would happen. In fact, in Zephaniah chapter 3, in verse 17, 15 through 17, It says, the Lord has taken away your judgments. He has cast out your enemy. The king of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst, and you shall see disaster no more. God's presence is coming in a special way. Therefore, do not fear Zion, let not your hands be weak. And in fact, if you go on to verse 17, he says, the Lord God is in your midst. The mighty one will save. This prophecy is shown, it is anticipated, all of this is aware. Now, now we can go to Matthew 1. And once we understand what we're dealing with, we can go to Matthew 1. As we go to Matthew 1, I want you to recognize that not only does God's presence, God with us reveals our need, God with us meets our need. Meets our need. His presence meets our greatest need. What, is this, what does He meet? What, what presence or what uh, benefit does He give us? Number one, His coming to us means salvation. Look with me in Matthew chapter 1. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When His mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. Joseph finds out that his wife-to-be, his betrothed, is expecting a baby, and of course his mind starts running circles. He knows he didn't do it. He knows his wife is an honorable woman. He doesn't know, in fact, we don't know if Mary has told him yet that this was of the Holy Spirit. We don't know how he found out. It's not clear. And in this particular case, he is thinking, what am I going to do? I don't want to make her a public example. I don't want to put her away and divorce her. It would be a public divorce. It would be shameful. It would ruin her life. But he loves her, and he he doesn't know what to do, and so he's waiting. And while he thinks about these things, verse 20, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David. That's a calling card of someone who's part of the Davidic line, one of the messianic lines. You you are part of the son of, being a son of David meant you were one of the kingly lines of Israel, or the kingly line. He says, Son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you, Joseph, shall call his name Jesus. Singular. You you will adopt this boy as your own, even though he's not your biological child. You will call his name. When a father calls his name, when when a man calls the child, names the child, you're owning that. You're, you're calling that that is, that is my child. You will, you will parent this child. But you will call his name what? Jesus. Jesus. The child will be the prophecy of the virgin birth. They shall call his name Emmanuel. Everything that happened was so that God's word would be fulfilled. God with us. God among us. In fact, this uh, I, as I was reading this, I, I, was, I remembered this verse from 1 John chapter 1. When, when John is describing, as he introduces his, his, um, his letter, he says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, or which we have seen with our eyes, 
which we have looked upon and our hands have handled. God with us. God coming to us means we can touch Him. Up until this point, it's been you can't come close. And now God with us, the Savior with us, Christ who lives among us, and the word Jesus, the word Jesus. He says his name will be called Jesus because his name is Emmanuel. And the reason that is the case, and that always confused me when I was a child. I thought, wait, can't they make up their mind? Is it Jesus? Is it Emmanuel? Like, what are are they going to call him? I don't understand. And the point is this, name indicates character in the Bible. And the reason that his name will be called Jesus is because he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus means Yahweh, or the Lord saves. And if the Lord saves because he saves, what does that say about who Jesus is? He's the Lord. And he says the Lord saves. He will be called Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. That's why it's fulfilling Emmanuel, God with us. He with us will save us from our sins. He brings salvation. God's coming to us means you can be saved. It means you're not condemned any longer. If you trust in the one who saves you, it means you have hope. That's why Christmas is so wonderful. That's why the incarnation is such a miracle. That's why we have so much joy in this dark and wet time of year when you're like, I think that this is like miserable having to trudge through. Aren't you thankful you have a Savior who came and lived and died so we can have salvation? We can have hope. We can have a home in heaven. We can have peace with God through Christ. This is what we have to be joyful about. And not only does we see here very clearly the, 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 uh, the, the name of God, uh, I'm sorry, the handling of God here, we see this in John chapter 1, in the prologue of John. God, it says, the Word became flesh and what? Dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Christ came and lived among us. You know the word live there, many have pointed out, is the same idea of the word that's used earlier with the idea of tabernacle place of dwelling. God, Jesus living among us was like how the tabernacle was set up in the camp among the people. Christ came and was among us. He came so you could be saved. That's the reason He came, but He also came so that you could draw near. And this is maybe the most important part of this whole thing, because the beauty of the Christmas story is this final point. The presence of God that was removed from us because of our sin, the presence of God that brought fear to the disobedient, distance to the symbol, and demanded complete holiness from His worshipers is now come to us. He, the perfectly obedient, comes to take our sin so we can be perfectly obedient to the Father. He takes our place on the cross. He dies for every sin that you've ever committed. Big sins, little sins, doesn't matter. God, God sees them on the cross When Jesus dies for your sins, they are paid for. No longer are we held at a distance. We no longer are pushed aside or pushed away. God doesn't say anymore, you can't come close. Look at Hebrews chapter 10. This is the the, what I read at the beginning of the of the service today, and I want you to turn your Bible one last time to Hebrews chapter 10, to the back of your Bible. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 19, we see this truth. He says, yes, in the Old Testament, God's holiness was great. You were kept, at a pe- you were kept away from, from the Father. You, you were kept away from God. You said, no, you can't come close. He's too holy, and we are too unholy. That's but Jesus Christ who died for us. We are now, the Bible says, in Christ, that now it's not us standing before God. Now it's not us anymore. We stand before God in Him. 
He owns us. He takes us with him. And God receives us because he receives Christ. Look at verse 19. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated, made holy for us through the veil that is his flesh, Oh, we could spend a whole hour talking about just that one sentence. What he's saying is that we can with boldness come before God to the holy of holy places, that place that was off limits for everyone except for the high priest once a year to come with blood offering sacrifice to make atonement for the sins of the people. That place was off limits, but now it's wide open. And he says, you can go by the blood of Jesus because we've been saved by the blood of Jesus. We have no fear anymore. We can come with boldness, come with boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus by a new and living way, and having a high priest over the house of God. Let us draw near with true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience, our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let us consider one another in order to stir up to love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching, we should draw near. We should come close. Before God was constantly saying, you can't come close. He says, but you've been washed. You've been cleansed. When you, when you trust Jesus as your Savior, when you put your confidence in Him, the Bible says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And what's the promise? You shall be saved, rescued, delivered. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Now, whosoever, that means you, that means me, believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. We have eternal life, everlasting life, what was taken from us in the Garden of Eden by sin. Death was brought, now we have life through Christ, eternal life. You see the drawing close, he says, let us draw close, let us hold fast, let us consider each other, and we see this promise of Jesus fulfilled. Jesus, Matthew chapter 1, is called Emmanuel. In the Great Commission, Matthew 28, he says, you are to be teaching people to observe all the things I've commanded you. And Jesus says this, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's with you. He is with us. Does that scare you or does that encourage you? Does it terrify you to know that God knows every single thing you've ever done? every thought you've ever had. It ought to. Shall not, as Abraham says, shall not the judge of the earth do what is right? The Lord, the judge of all things, He has done what is right. And Jesus dying on the cross gives us the opportunity to trust Him and receive that payment for our sins, so no longer are we standing by ourselves before the great and almighty consuming power, which is consuming fire, which is our God, but we can stand before Him in Jesus, who already took the punishment for our sins upon Him and rose from the dead, demonstrating that it was paid for in full. You recognize the presence of God, although it is incredibly 
humbling thing and scary thing. Because of our sin, I say on the bottom there, we cannot draw near. We need someone to bear that sin, to carry that sin far from us, to pay for it, to make us righteous. This is what Jesus did. And if you believe in Jesus, if you trust him alone for salvation, your sins will be covered. Your sins will be forgiven once for all. And because of our sin, we cannot draw near, but because of Jesus, we must draw near. It's the only option we have left. We must draw near to God. Those who have never trusted Christ, my request to you is please, my friend, come to Jesus. It takes humbling. It takes admitting that you are a sinner and that you need a Savior. It takes recognizing your sinful state. It takes faith, believing that God has said is true and believing that He is who He says He is. It takes humility to recognize that you can't save yourself. There is a lot of truth when, when in, in Isaiah he says, cease striving. We, we a lot of times read that, be still and know that I am God. Uh, the Hebrew there is like the idea of stop squirming. Cease striving. You ever tried to rescue someone who was drowning? I actually have. One time when I was younger, there was a boy who we took to the pool, and he jumped into the pool, and he didn't know he didn't know how to swim. I don't know how he didn't know that, but he didn't know. And he started flailing around, and I was a fool. I thought, oh, I will help him. I jumped in after him, and he pulled me down. He was not being calm. He was not relaxed. He was flailing. And, and then the, the lifeguard who was trained in this did what he was supposed to do and attached one hand to the, the side uh, little ladder there and reached out and was able to pull him in and pull us both, and it scared me to death. I still remember that to this day. And I think of that's how a lot of people are. They're like, stop trying to save me. I'm trying to save myself. You need to cease striving. You can't save yourself. And know, he says, that I am God. Salvation is not just about forgiveness of sin and a home in heaven. It is about those things, but it's about reuniting a relationship with the God who made us that was broken in the garden when things were good. And it's not possible because of our work, but because of His work of coming and being among us. God with us. What does God promise for our future? Revelation chapter 21, just listen. Or you can look at the bottom of your outline. I, put, I, I wrote it out for you there. John says, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. This is still future. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, and God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle, the dwelling place of God is with men, and He will dwell with them, and they shall be His people. God Himself will be with them and be their God, and God shall wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall be no more death nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Oh, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Because the greatest promise in all of Scripture is that God will be with us and be our God, and we can stand purified by the sacrifice of Christ and stand faultless before our great God and Savior. I encourage you today, if you are not walking with the Lord like you should, draw close to Him. Confess your sin. It, life is too short to not be right with God. Life's too short to not get right with God, Christian. person who hasn't yet trusted Christ, I challenge you as well. 
trust in the Lord. He loves you and he wants to save you. Father, we ask you today to please work in our hearts as we draw close to you now. There's a thing we need to deal with that your spirit has shown us, has revealed. I pray, God, that we'd have the courage to deal with it right now. We would confess our sin because you're faithful and just to forgive us our sin. And this Christmas season, what a wonderful time of year it would be to put aside our own pride, to embrace the humility of calling upon you as our Savior, the Lord who created all things, the one who owns everything, and submitting to you in salvation. Every head bowed and every eye closed, I want to give you an opportunity to deal with God now. I don't know if you know Christ or if you are as close to Him as you've ever been in your life. I don't know where you stand on the and I'm sure in this room is represented a lot of different people with a lot of different things, a lot of different um, spiritual places. Some of you have, have never trusted Christ as your Savior. You're far from God. You've lived a life of rebellion against God. You're only here because somebody dragged you here. But you know that God is calling your name right now. You felt the pursuit of the God who is with you, and it scares you sometimes. But now I want to tell you, friend, there is a, there is a, there is a peace that you can have through Jesus who is the way, the truth, and the life. And I beg of you to, believe, to, to trust him, to pray now and ask God to forgive you of your sin, to pray and ask God to be your Savior and to say, Lord, I believe and I trust in you as my Savior. I'm not trusting in myself, I'm trusting in you, receiving the gift of salvation. But friend, if you're a Christian and you've been living a life that's wandering from God or far from God, I hope that as we've talked about God's presence, it would be a, something to provoke your heart Say, I need to trust God more. I need to lean on Him more. I need to repent of these sins and come back to Him and walk with Him as I should. We're going to take a moment of quiet before the, as the piano plays.